I get the impression they weren't expecting anything to happen. It's just the white car, which I believe he thought was a Cadillac, pulled up alongside and just started shooting. That's that's what got his attention was all the, the gunfire. And he's, from what I remember, he said that it appeared the gun and the arm or hand holding the gun was coming out of the driver's door window. All the windows were down from what I recall them saying. And being September, yeah, it's warm. You'd want air conditioning, but you're driving the strip. A lot of people drive with their windows down. A party in your car, sort of. Yeah, it's in that, in that party mood, so to speak. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13, 1996, he had sold millions of records. In death, the prolific musical artist would sell millions more. 25 years ago, it was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case and scored several firsts, including getting the first interview with the original Las Vegas Metro detectives. 25 years later, once again, an exclusive, I interview now-retired homicide detective Brent Becker. Nothing is off the table. Oh, and if you've listened to Tupac's songs, you will have heard some of the strong language that is lightly sprinkled in some episodes. Enough said. I'm on an Ozizway reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Episode 1. September 7th, 1996. Just as I remember where I was the first time I heard a Tupac Shakur song, South Central Los Angeles, I remember exactly where I was when I heard of his shooting in Las Vegas. 25 years ago, I was reading a newspaper while waiting for breakfast at a diner in Palm Beach, Florida. And yes, just like Tupac's song, I get around. I exclaimed when I saw the news article, and exclaimed is the word. I was shocked. My dining companion wondered what was going on, and I read the short news story aloud. By the time I finished the article, my face twisted into a wry expression because I was thinking, oh, that Tupac, he's indestructible. He survived a shooting before in New York. He will again. And I've heard folks who were close to Tupac echo the same sentiments. We just all assumed that he would survive this onslaught of bullets and he would go on to write songs about surviving a drive-by in Las Vegas. Lots and lots of songs. We were collectively dead wrong. Tupac passed away after I left the Sunshine State and returned to my job on a primetime crime show. Yes, while he had been rapping with Snoop Dogg about being two of America's most wanted, I was actually an on-air correspondent and producer on America's Most Wanted. I asked my bosses if I could do a story about Tupac. All of them were not especially enthusiastic about the idea at the time. It may have had something to do with all that was symbolized by the words thug life tattooed on Tupac's 
six-pack. However, they said yes. Even before Tupac's shooting, I coincidentally had begun developing sources within the Compton Police Department, as well as death row records. Once I got the green light, I started making calls to the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. 25 years ago, LVMPD said yes, too. I quickly became aware of how competitive the race had been to get the interviews with the investigators. During my first day of the shoot, a source showed me a letter addressed to Las Vegas Metro from the producer of a competing show. Somehow that producer got word that I'd be coming to town to interview Tupac's homicide detectives, and basically, he wasn't having it. He spelled it all out in a letter that his show was better than mine, that his show got better ratings. He added that he had family in law enforcement. To the best of my recollection, and trust me, I unsuccessfully tried to get a copy of that letter, the producer added that another reason Las Vegas Metro should do the interview with him rather than me is because he's black. Uh, the last time I checked, so am I. For the record, I have never written a letter like that. Never, ever. And as far as I know, that's the only time I've been targeted by another show. So began my journey to interviewing the original investigators of the murder of Tupac Shakur. The journey toward this podcast, Lennon Ozizway reporting Tupac's murder was his case, has been considerably simpler. Earlier this year, when I started researching my old story anew, I realized how very little the original investigators have spoken publicly, other than that interview I did 25 years ago. So I asked now-retired homicide detective Brent Becker if I could interview him once again, 25 years after our first interview, and he said yes. Take me back to the beginning. You're at home? I, I was actually asleep because Mike and I were on call. And uh, when you're on call, you got to be concerned. Yeah, you're going to get that one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning phone call, which happened quite often. So I, I know I was in bed. I got the phone call. Uh, it would have been from Kevin Manning, my sergeant. He said there'd been a shooting. I'm sure he gave me the a location to go to. And the thing that kind of caught my interest was that he said no one's dead yet. Traditionally, we didn't go out to a, scene, a murder scene or a homicide scene unless someone was deceased. If they were alive, someone else took the case. So why were you called? Well, from what I gathered... Whoever Kevin talked to, because I don't know who he got the call from and how it was presented, but it was that whoever was shot and was alive, apparently that person knew a little bit about him and figured it had the potential to be a big deal. So Kevin said we were rolling out on it, and I'm sure he got the call from our lieutenant. So, like I said, I don't know how the conversation was, but he just said, guy's been shot. I think he probably said he was a rap a rapper. Uh, so I got up, got dressed, and we all rolled out to uh, 
the scene. So what what was going through your mind in that it's fight night? Yeah. <laughs> the roads are going to be busy. You know, there's going to be traffic. What else were you told before you arrived on the scene? Uh, well, I knew this. it was down on the Strip. So like you said, I knew it was a fight night. And it had been probably, it had been several hours since the fight was over. But it's still fight night one, and it's a weekend evening on the Strip. So even without the fight, it's going to be busy. So I just thought, well, traffic's going to be a real joy. And getting to where the shooting was, I know that the scene should be secured, so that's just going to create more of a traffic dilemma, so to speak. And uh, I know that when we got out there, we usually do a, a briefing with the detectives that are out there, and they'll give us a description of stuff, you know, an idea of what's happening. So Kevin, Mike, and I will be there. We'll be writing notes. What did they tell you? Uh, what do you recall that they told you? I just you? recall that the person's a, a, a rapper. Uh, they got shot at. Actually, it would have been up at Flamingo and Colval is where the shooting occurred. But the end of the event was at uh, Las Vegas Boulevard or the Strip in uh, Harmon. And that's where we were at because the uh, BMW was sitting there with flat tires and the bullet holes in it and people all over the place. And I could see they had some people over on the side that were, I assumed, related to the whole thing. Okay. And in terms of the BMW, we're talking about the BMW that Tupac was in. He was a passenger. And Suge Knight, the CEO of Death Row Records, and that was Tupac's record label, he was the driver. Correct. And uh, I don't recall if ID techs were called CSIs then, but we'll use CSI to describe them because it seems to be what everybody understands today. I know that the CSI was already there because they're working they're assigned shifts, so whoever was working that shift, and, and I know who it was, was out there taking photographs. If there's any evidence to collect, he's, he's doing his job, his function. And I'm sure he came up and talked to us and told us, you know, basically what he had. What do you recall about the scenes? Because there were at least two scenes, some people might say three. One was the scene of the shooting. One was the scene where Suge Knight, who was the driver, you know, made a U-turn. But but in your words, how can you categorize? And then some people believe that there was a third scene because people in the entourage following Tupac and Suge Knight, it, they, there are some reports that at least one person followed him. So when you got there that night, what did you know about the crime scene or crime scenes, plural? The, the first scene was the boulevard in Harmon where the car was stopped. Uh, Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur were gone. You got to realize this happened, what, about quarter after 11 in the evening? And 
you got to understand when the call comes out, sure, the police are going and all this. And once it's semi-static, I'll call it, because I'm sure this wasn't static for a while, they're doing whatever they're doing to get the situation settled down. Then the detectives, the night detectives are called, the general assignment detectives are called. They're going to do their thing. And all that takes time. You you got to figure there probably was 45 minutes to an hour of things going on before we ever got notified. And because by what I remember on my the crime report I took, it was probably about 12.30 in the morning the next day when we got basically called out to go and go to the scene and do whatever we were doing. So I get there, the car's sitting there, there's nobody in it. It's pretty hectic. I mean, you got a lot of people on the sides of the streets. You got- They'd be there anyway. Yeah, they're just the general public have been walking up and down the strip, driving down the strip. Now you've got the road closed. So you've got all that going on. You've got uniformed police officers all over the place securing it. And you've got people detained who, as it turned out, were part of the bodyguards or entourage or the outlaws group at the scene. But everybody wasn't there, I can tell you that, as we'll find out later as things continued. But the immediate time, there was, I recall, there was three or four guys sitting they're on the on the harm or on the side that we're going to need to be interviewed that were supposedly in the car directly behind Suge and Tupac. Well, my understanding from what I've read and heard is that the witnesses felt like they were treated like suspects. And that could have been because if they were in the car behind them, and I'm guessing they were in the car behind them as they headed south on the boulevard and came to a stop. The officers don't know if those guys are part of the Suge Knight, Tupac Shakur group, or are they guys chasing those two? And so uh, that would be something that could be going through their head. I don't know. Other than what I was well, uh, under than what I was told, and but I can understand their anger. Anybody's going to be upset to get a gun pointed in their face, right? And especially when, even though this is 1996, pre George Floyd, you know there is a history of not the greatest um, interactions, oftentimes, particularly with young black men. And these were yeah. young black men. Yeah, and it could have been because police officers and black men, and if most of the police officers were white, yeah, there's you're always going to have that issue come up. When you arrived at the scene of Tupac's shooting, what did you know? They were driving uh, eastbound on Flamingo at Koval. Someone pulled up alongside of the car, fired multiple shots, striking the passenger who was Tupac Shakur, and supposedly the driver, Suge Knight, may have been hit by a stray bullet or fragment that they had uh, 
shooters were in a white car, either a Cadillac or a Lincoln Town car, and then it, it had fled southbound on Koval. The uh, car that Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur were in had done a U-turn, followed by multiple vehicles of their entourage, and had gone westbound on Flamingo, southbound on Las Vegas Boulevard, or the Strip as people know it. And it came to a stop at Las Vegas Boulevard and Harmon because there were uh, police officers there. And they detained everybody in the car. Apparently there was some hostility between the uniformed officers and maybe the people in the car as far as the way they felt they were being treated by the police. And when you say the car, you're talking about the BMW? The car that, the BMW that Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur were in, uh, and at least one car that was behind them, which had the bodyguard, Frank Alexander, and three members, I believe they were considered of the Outlaws group, band, whatever, uh, Malcolm Greenidge, Katari Cox, and uh, Yafu Fula. And Alexander, uh, Greenidge, Cox, and Fula, I believe, were all detained right there. And when you say how... Because I know I... I know I interviewed at least three of the, I'm trying to recall the one, but uh, they were they were there. Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur were already gone. They'd been off to the hospital. Got you, but I'm just trying to establish, you get there, you know there's been a shooting, you know that two of the shooting victims have gone to the hospital, you know that one of the shooting victims is Tupac Shakur, you know that there was a car behind the, the vehicle that Suge and Tupac were riding in, and those the occupants of that car have been detained, and you know that yes. there's a great deal of hostility, but they might say something else and that they were, from what I understand, upset that guns were drawn on them and they were told to you know, get down onto the ground, even face down. So that's what, when you arrived, that's what you found. Am I correct? Yeah, they were, they were upset because of what you just said. Uh, and uh, they were sitting over on the sidewalk, I believe. When you arrived. Yeah, when I arrived, the, the four, like I said, Knight and Shakur were gone. Uh, and that was at the scene where the car came to a stop. There was still the scene where the shooting occurred. I get to later on. Got you. But as that point, you knew that a white Cadillac was, was involved, that it fled the scene. That was before you even did any interviews. Is that correct? No, I, I'm trying to remember it was a white car. I don't know that it was that specific to what type yet, because I hadn't done any interviews yet. The, the gist of the, the call out wouldn't have had any of that in it. That would have all been gathered after interviewing witnesses. Okay, because that was one thing that I was interested in is the bolo, if if there had been, uh, you know, at the scene or before you arrived, if there had been a be on the lookout for a light-colored or cream-colored Cadillac or Lincoln or whatever, any car, was there to your knowledge? That would have been done by the uniformed officers. I just 
don't remember. I would think they were. I don't know if they said Cadillac or town car. I'm sure they had the white vehicle, but I didn't. And I'm sure when we did the briefing with the night detectives, the general assignment detectives, that would have come up, but it's still just a briefing. I haven't gotten any direct information from the supposed witnesses who saw what happened. From what I've been able to dig up, the first person you interviewed was Frank Alexander. Does that match with your memory? That, that sounds correct because he would have been the bodyguard one of Tupac Shakur and he'd have been driving the car that was directly behind uh, the BMW that Knight and Shakur were in. And did you know anything about him at all before you started interviewing him that you recall? Yeah, I might have got I might have got something from him from a pre-interview because usually we do a little bit of a pre-interview before we turn the tape on, just to try and especially in this case to probably try and make things easier since everybody's upset. I don't remember if I knew then or not, but uh, ultimately I knew he had been a Marine and had been a former deputy, I believe, corrections officer for Orange County Sheriff's. And that was during the interviews, things come up about him being an off-duty officer. So Correct. And we will definitely get to that. So you knew a little bit about him. You knew he was driving in the car directly behind Suge and Tupac. The car was a black Lexus. Is That's yes, what I understand. Yes. And from Frank Alexander's later account, it was borrowed from... Tupac's girlfriend, Kadada Jones. Yeah, I think it might it might have been. It wasn't really a critical issue as far as what was going on at the time. Got you. My understanding is is this was your first interview, as I said, and from what I understand, it was also your longest interview. It probably was because him being a former corrections officer. Being a Marine, he, he kind of knows what's going on. What, And because he's the bodyguard of Tupac Shakur, he probably understands what's uh, needed of him in some sense. I mean, he's still going to have his loyalty to Shakur and to probably Death Row Records. So he told you that the shot, from what he could see, came from the front window. He said they were behind, stopped at the light at Flamingo and Koval, behind Shakur and Knight. I get the impression they weren't expecting anything to happen. It's just the white car, which I believe he thought was a Cadillac, pulled up alongside and just started shooting. That's that's what got his attention was all the, the gunfire. And he, from what I remember, he said that appeared the gun and the arm or hand holding the gun was coming out of the driver's door window. All the windows were down from what I recall them saying. And being September, yeah, it's warm. You'd want air conditioning, but you're driving the strip. A lot of people drive with their windows down. A party in your car, sort of. Yeah, it's in that in that party mood, so to speak. He also said that the gun was held by a dark-skinned arm. Yes, 
he he was able to say that he never saw any face he couldn't be specific i don't think he was certain there were even four people in the car he was fairly certain there was the two in the front he didn't say there were not four people in the car he just it seemed to be the the two in the front was the focus and he also was very specific in saying it was a glock well, the guy's a bodyguard. He probably and he's a former Marine and he's a former deputy. He knows a little bit about handguns. So and a Glock is a fairly specific looking firearm. And I believe in the beginning he thought it might have been like a nine millimeter, but it turned out to be something else. But that really doesn't matter when you got gunfire going on. I defy anybody to be specific as to the caliber. Well, and he had also mentioned in his book that he grew up basically on the streets around a lot of violence. So that would have also given him an opportunity to know the difference. You know, Frank was the driver, is my understanding. There was also Katari Cox in the car. And he would have been in the back seat. I'm trying to remember if he was the one behind the driver. Then Malcolm Greenidge would have been in the other back seat. And I believe Yafu Fulu is in the front passenger seat. Okay. Katari, my understanding, uh, his uh, stage name, or he was known as, is known as Castro. Did you ever speak to him? You know, I'm, if he was there, I must have. I just, I just don't remember right now. Uh, if, if there's a statement that would confirm it, because... A statement is going to be a record of, well, any reports are going to be a record of what happened then. Those are going to be the most accurate account of what happened. You know, later on, especially now, uh, I would rely on those statements more than I would anything. I just don't, rem I just don't remember him. It's my understanding he was sitting behind Frank Alexander. That's the way I remember the seating was Frank driving, Yafu Fula, front passenger, Malcolm Greenidge behind Fula, and Katari Cox behind Frank Alexander. Okay, and again, according to the records that I've seen, that Malcolm was the second person you spoke with. Does that seem to conform with... Yeah, that would make sense. It's For some reason, I think... I want to say Fula was the last one I talked to, if I remember correctly. But I remember talking to Malcolm Greenidge. A.K.A. Idi Amin. Yeah, That's... I wouldn't have known all of his, all their stage names. I'd just used their, their birth name, I guess you'd call it. The, the government name. Yeah. My, <laughs> okay. That's kind of the... Yeah. the uh, and my understanding is he's a member of a group that Tupac put together of people from his background and or friends of. And he identified himself in the statement as Tupac's brother-in-law. That's how he put it. And he was in he would have been in the back seat, the right rear seat of the Lexus that Frank Alexander was driving. And what did he tell you? Well, one, he said he wasn't at the fight that night because I know we got into that. He didn't know about any issues that Tupac had with anybody. Uh, 
he just said he was in the car. They'd done some driving. I think he'd gone to Suge's house. But at, at the time of the shooting, he'd uh, they were just behind Shakur and Knight's black BMW when a white car, and I think he described it, he might have described it as a white Cadillac, appeared on the side and someone just started shooting into the BMW. He couldn't say for sure how many people were in there. He couldn't describe anybody. Uh, he just said that there was a bunch of shots. The car took off and headed south on Cobalt. And he described the shooter's arm as dark-skinned. He did say it was a dark skin. I th I'm pretty sure I probably asked him, light-skinned, dark-skinned. That was usually how it went because you, you'd like to know that because it could become critical at some point. And uh, I think they, they were all short. You know, I was probably focusing on the length of the shirts. Being September, probably short sleeve, and I think everybody was saying it was more or less short sleeves because they saw a lot of skin on the arm. And you were also asking about hairstyles. I mean, just anything that you could get to place. Absolutely. If they, if they can see someone in the car, if they're wearing a jerry curl, if it's shaved, afro, you know, short afro, big afro, whatever. Dreadlocks. Dreadlocks. It, it's all something... Granted, all those hairstyles can change, but it's critical at the time because who knows, maybe if you do identify someone, you can get someone to say, well, on that night they had this hairstyle. I don't, you know, it's just, you want anything you can put in there to help with the investigation. And he also said that he maybe saw two black males as Frank Alexander did. They were seemed to be focused on the front of the car. And yeah, there's a driver and maybe the front passenger because no one, I just got the impression no one was expecting trouble. And this all of a sudden happened and they're just doing a quick gander over at the car. And they're probably focusing on the front knowing someone's driving it. Uh, and... I don't recall if he knew for sure which window was coming out of. It would be in the statement. But the windows would have been down. I remember getting into tinted windows, asking about tinted windows. And because the windows were down, no one could really say. And they probably weren't looking at the rear window, the rear, because that would have been tinted too. But they were probably all focused on what was going on at the time as far as the shooting. Yes, I don't see any, any mention of what window the gun came out of. I do see that you questioned him whether that there was a gun in the car that Frank Alexander was riding, and he said no. Yeah, everybody basically said no one was carrying a gun that night, whether they were or not, but I can only go by what they're telling me as far as the death row entourage. And according to this statement you spoke with him for about five minutes yeah it might have been that again you know we're we're pretty well going along this isn't going to be hours and hours one he's not considered the guy who did the shooting i'm just trying to get information from him as far as what he saw and he's giving what little he knew and is willing to give 
you know, so I, I don't know for sure how truthful he was or how forthcoming he was, but at least he was giving some information. And then, according to the statements, and my understanding is Yafufula, also known as Yaki Gaddafi, he was the one you talked to next, also for about yeah. five minutes. And he would have been in the front passenger seat, so really he'd have probably had the better view. He'd have been the closer side of the car. And I just remember him talking about driving down. I don't I don't remember anybody talking about any incident at the MGM. In fact, Malcolm, a.k.a. Edie, he said that it was an uneventful day up to the shooting. Correct. And I will say that Malcolm said he was not at the fight. So if he wasn't at the fight, he probably wasn't present for anything that may have happened at the MGM. So that would be factual in that sense. Now, if he overheard someone telling a story, he didn't reveal that. But Fula said the car came up. He remembered a dark arm, an arm coming out the driver's door window and shooting into the black BMW that Shakur and Knight were in. And he described the driver as having a bitch face and being light-skinned. Now, Fula was a light-skinned black male compared to everybody else that I remember. And he might have said it wasn't quite as light-skinned as him, but he was a fair-skinned black male. He did use that bitch face term. Right, and I remember from the time I interviewed you 25 years ago of you using that term. And initially I, I had no idea what it meant. And then I was like, oh, that, that term's referring to a woman, but it took me a minute. And he did, in fact, in the statement, say that, that the driver had a soft face. Yes, yes. And he thought he might be able to identify the driver. It might. You know, there was not, no one ever said they could absolutely, but it was at least something that we had to, to go on later on once, if we developed any persons of interest that we could throw photo lineups on to show to people. Well, I want to ask you something about that in just a moment, but he also said that he had a white baseball cap and maybe was bald with a mustache. Again, this is the driver. Yeah, and again, I if that's on the statement, that's what he said. I just don't recall that part of it. But If he were to provide that much detail, would it not have been a thought or would it have been a practice at all to call somebody to do a talk to him to do a composite sketch that night? No, you didn't have composite. First of all, if I remember right, we only had one person that did composite drawings when you requested it and he wouldn't have been working then. That would have been something that would have been done later on. The photo lineup would have been a better thing to do because uh, yeah, composite drawings can be reliable, but they can be just as unreliable. You see, we've seen that time and time again. I'm just mentioning it in that he was saying, you know, he's light-skinned, a white baseball cap, maybe bald, mustache. That's a bit of detail. Oh, yeah, and that's why I wanted to show him a photo lineup, and we tried to show him a photo lineup because I thought if he can, 
if he can ID the driver as someone that maybe we developed, then that's, that's huge as far as where we go from there. But it wasn't meant to be, as we will discuss later. Again, that was the driver who was described as light-skinned with the, quote, bitch face, uh, unquote. The shooter, there is consistency. Again, he describes it as somebody with a dark-skinned arm to you, correct? Yes, yes. He does say a dark-skinned arm, which if the arm came out the driver's door window, and because this person was lighter skinned, would tend to make you think the front passenger may have been reaching across and shooting. Because you know, why would why would someone in the back seat reach through the front window when they can reach through the back window? And it's my understanding you said he was able to recognize the driver versus the shooter. Is that correct in terms of what he told you? He he thought he could recognize the driver. He would could not recognize a shooter. He wouldn't be able to ID him if the person stood in front of him. That's what he told you? Yes. All right. And he also said that there were no threats that day. And again, this interview with Gaddafi, a.k.a. Yafu Fula, lasted approximately five minutes. Again, would that be consistent with what you would do in similar situations? Well, I wasn't having to pry a lot of information out. And that's part of the why statements can take longer. When you've got to really pry people or ask multiple times, things tend to drag on. If people are at least answering your questions, it gives you an idea that, okay, they're, you know, they're at least answering what I've got. And I also know that I'm going to go back and want to talk to these people later on anyhow if I can. This is just to get something that's going on right now because this is, everything's still kind of... Uh, Popping. Yeah, dynamic, so to speak, here. Even though we do have people detained, there, there are things still going on. All right. Now, there were also four women who you interviewed, four women who apparently uh, just before the shooting had talked to Suge and Tupac and they said, come on down, we're heading to a party at Club 662. And so they were kind of a part of this entourage. What did they tell you? And they, they too were very upset. They were uh, in a convertible. They were following the group and they may have actually picked up on them on the boulevard. They ended up following them on Flamingo. Uh, they were up close enough that, you know, they were yelling, talking to each other, so to speak. They remembered, and at least two of them said either a white Lincoln cat town car or a white Cadillac pulled up alongside of the black BMW, and someone started shooting into the car. They couldn't be sure... They couldn't describe anybody other than black males, and they weren't sure of the numbers in the car. They just remember that the shooting occurred. They took off and turned south on Colval. And if I remember right, one of them even mentioned they saw the white town car or Cadillac come flying around the car and pass them. And one of them might have even. If I remember right, 
saying the front passenger they thought had a gun and may have been doing something out the window. You know, it, it's what they're saying and what people are saying otherwise, it gets a little confusing. But the, the key was they weren't specific as to a description of the people. They, they could identify anybody. And again, you had the white Lincoln Town Car and the white Cadillac. What they were saying, though, is they thought they had Nevada license plates. They saw the license plates and figured they were Nevada license plates. I remember that being in the statements. And and they might have mentioned they th- trying to decide if it was a rental car. And, and they were positioned uh, parallel at one point to the car of Suge and Tupac, correct? Yeah, they would have been in the curb lane. The, the white car would have been between them and the BMW. That's the way I remember it. All right. Um, they they were also very upset. They said that their purses were searched, and you know they were they were not. And one said that a racial slur was used by law enforcement. The N word is dead in front of them. So they were really quite upset. Yeah, well, and it wouldn't be surprising that they were upset because I remember, I think something came up that they had left the scene and then they came back. And that's when whoever the officers were that arrived at the scene and they said they saw something or knew something, they detained them. And, I'm, you know, just like the folks where the car ended up at Harmon and the Boulevard, they probably got... I don't know if they had guns pointed at them, but they were, you know, I remember them. I think they were sitting on the sidewalk when I got there. And they were finery. And they were dressed They were dressed up, too, because they were out for the evening. So they were out to party or do whatever. So I'm sure sitting on the sidewalk isn't exactly what you want to do with your nice clothes. And if I remember right, probably some provocative clothing to boot. So now you're sitting down, which makes it even more... Uncomfortable. Yeah. All of these statements were voluntary statements, so correct? Or were they, in fact, detained? I'm trying to figure that out. Well, keep in mind they're detained in the sense that the police have detained them for investigative purposes. They aren't being considered as someone who did it. They're witnesses who may have seen something. They were probably detained to give those statements. And then when I talked to them, they willingly gave the statements. It wasn't anything like I, I didn't have to do anything. You know, if they said, I don't want to say anything, they can leave. There's nothing I'm going to, in the long run, hold them for. I'm just going to ask them. I says, I'd like to know what you saw. So we have it. And more or less everybody did that I remember. So in spite of the fact that, you know, earlier the outlaws are talking about having guns, you know, drawn on them, they did stick around and they did talk to you. And these four women, you know, maybe no weapons were drawn, but they were very uncomfortable and unhappy. They did stick around to talk. Yeah, they they were, I mean, they weren't leaving before I got there because I think the officers probably told them they had to stay there. But when I got there and started talking to them, if they'd have said, I have nothing to say, I don't want to say anything to you, 
ultimately they'd get to walk away. There's, I'm not going to arrest them for anything. Uh, and I believe just about everybody at least said something. Okay. One other thing I remember from their statement, one of the women said that she saw a man jump out of one of the cars with a gun. Frank Alexander talks about jumping out of a car, but my understanding from what he writes, he did not have his gun with him at that moment because he says at the last minute, Suge Knight told him to use you know, this other car, you know, I'd mentioned earlier. So he said, I wasn't about to say, oh, I don't have my gun. He just immediately went into the car. What is your understanding of the person who jumped out of the car who was with the entourage with a gun and dressed in black? The, the only person at the time that was talking about that was Frank Alexander jumping out. There's uh, at least one of the girls saying they saw a person jump out of a car that was behind them, come up to the black BMW and had a gun in their hand. But the only person that anybody talked about was Frank Alexander saying he ran up to the car. And it wasn't long after he got to the car that Suge Knight made his U-turn. So it wasn't like there was a long conversation going on there. This thing, things were happening quick. Because at that intersection, Flamingo and Koval, you got left turn lanes, through lanes, and then you can also turn right onto Koval. Suge Knight was supposedly in the lane immediately to the right of the left turn lane. So if Lo B was in a car to the left of him, he would have been in a turn lane. And I'm not saying he couldn't have been. I, I, I'm not there when all this happens. He could have easily gone around and took off ahead of them, but that just doesn't fit the way they're describing all the car placement in the road. And one other person to ask you about, somebody identifying himself as K-Dub, he's the one that says he was just directly in front of Suge Knight and Tupac. He also mentions that he jumped out of the car, so, you know, after he realized that there was a shooting. Does that, and, I was wondering, possibly, is he the one that had the gun? Well, and he could have been who the girls saw, though, Even though I, recollect that, I recollect that the person ran up to the BMW. And Frank's, Correct. And I'm going by Frank's statement. Frank never says anything about anybody else. And... If he would have, and, and I'm not saying he didn't, if he jumped out of the car and left his car sitting there, definitely would have made it difficult or maybe explained why Suge Knight made it a U-turn over the median because the car was in the way. Pretty consistently, though, from all those statements that you got that night, that original early morning, is a dark-skinned hand or dark-skinned arm Pretty consistently, you heard that nothing happened earlier in the day. Correct. And what else would you say was pretty consistent from what you heard that early morning? Well, uh, you know, there are comments that they'd gone to the Luxor, they'd gone to Suge Knight's house, and they came up Las Vegas Boulevard. There was comments about... Uh, the BMW that Suge and Tupac were in getting stopped by bike officers. 
because of, I think it was loud music. I don't know. The, it wasn't real critical. I just remember that it came up that they got stopped. The should got out, had a conversation with the officers. He opened his trunk. And I think they even said they shook hands before they departed. But no one was issued a ticket or anything like that. It seemed very friendly. Speaking of yeah. which, let, let's get into the timeline as far as you know it. Okay. My understanding, and you wouldn't have known all this information at that point, you know, that early morning, but let's just go through it just to give a sense okay. of the geography and, and uh, what happened. They drove in, yeah, and that they were staying at the Luxor. It was common that death row records took a block of rooms there whenever they were in town. And they would have gone there. I don't know if he changed clothes. He might have changed clothes to go to the fight. But they ended up at the fight. I'm pretty sure they walked over there uh, because Tupac and Mike Tyson apparently were friends or knew each other well or whatever and ended up going to the... They were there for the fight. Okay. So Tupac, my understanding, had produced a song just for Mike Tyson to play at that fight. I, I'd heard that, yes. And it's my understanding that Frank Alexander, Tupac's bodyguard, accompanied Tupac and Suge Knight inside the actual fight. Does that comport with what you know? That's how I understand it. Yes, they were together. Frank, Frank Alexander would have been pretty close to wherever Tupac Shakur was because he was Tupac Shakur's bodyguard. He wasn't Suge Knight's. He wasn't the bodyguard of any other entertainer. He was Tupac Shakur's man. And it was my understanding that Tupac was very hyped up by the fight. Very, woo even though it was very brief, like a, a, a minute 49, but he was like hyped. Does that? Oh, he, pro he probably was, especially if Mike Tyson's his friend. And Mike Tyson just whooped on a guy and did it pretty quickly. Yeah, he's probably a little animated. <laughs> and then they leave Frank Alexander, Suge Knight, Tupac Shakur, and go Correct. through the lobby of the MGM Grand. Well, they go through, I don't know why I want to call it, because when I think of the lobby, I think of the desk, the front desk. I'm thinking more of the casino or the, the main part of the hotel. Because, yeah, the lobby, to me, at least I consider it the front desk, which is going to be, I mean, it may be next to a casino, but I think they were in the casino area. And, you know, and knowing how the arena was set up, I believe you had to go by, uh, you might have even had to go through some shopping areas, too, to get out of there. So they exit. They exited. And... Ultimately, apparently, Tupac Shakur saw somebody or someone pointed him out to them, to him, as being someone from an opposing gang, so to speak, that was from Southern California and may have had something to do with the taking of a death row medallion at a shopping mall in California. Which we will definitely get into more in depth, but something's wrong. Apparently, uh, Tupac Shakur got wheels and took off after the dude. And, well, 
their number one star is off alone heading for someone and everybody followed and they ended up at least beating on somebody at some point, you know, whether they harmed them enough to put them in the hospital, but they at least attempted to put a beat down on someone. And ultimately we learned there was a videotape of that. Which we will definitely get into. That was about 12 seconds. And then what? Then I'm sure, uh, People were probably pulling Tupac off a little bit, but while other people are putting the shoe leather and such to uh, the person. Frank Alexander said he was trying to pull him off. Yeah, and uh, from what I remember, Frank really didn't partake in the beatdown. He was more trying to be the negotiator, so to speak, and and break it apart. And I know that they uh, separated, and that's when Tupac led the the entourage with Suge and Frank and everybody walking quickly behind him through the casino. And as they went through the casino, the crowd obviously got bigger and bigger and bigger because one, they're seeing Tupac one. They probably know Suge Knight. They see him walking quickly. They may not have witnessed what happened as far as the beatdown, but all they're doing is seeing their, their star and whatever heading quick and they want to see what's up. And they, went through the casino and exited out onto the boulevard and ultimately walked back to the Luxor. But leaving, he was like a Pied Piper. Oh yeah, he was He was definitely the guy in front and everybody was trying to keep up with him. And it was quite evident, more and more people kind of tagged on in the back as they went. Now, I don't know that they went all the way over to the Luxor, but at least they were moving through the casino. So they went to the Luxor for what purpose? My understanding and from video we saw was uh, Tupac was going to change clothes. They had their rooms over there and they changed clothes and they were going to get in their vehicles because I believe they were probably valeted over there because at one point there's video of uh, Tupac down in valet with a bunch of girls and his clothing was entirely different. He was in a a nice shirt at the MGM, and I think he was in like a tank top at at the Luxor. He had his, I think he had some jewelry on and such. And he's talking to them, and they're getting their cars. And I know there was a mention of MC Hammer being there and his Hummer. And so everybody loaded up. And eventually they went from there to Suge Knight's house, which would have been south of the airport. Out, It's out in the county. And what kind of a neighborhood you would you describe uh, Suge Knight's home? That would be, uh, uh, I think it was a gated community. It was a pretty nice community. You know, nice homes, nice landscaping and such. So it wasn't a shabby place by any means. I don't know that he actually owned the house or rented it or what, but it was his house. He had celebrity neighbors like Mike Tyson. Oh, yeah. Down down in that section, especially in that area, you know, when you go back to the old Las Vegas, you got equestrian estates down there. You got Wayne Newton down at the Shenandoah. You got a lot of people because there's nice homes down there. 
So yeah, entertainers, if they are going to have a Las Vegas home, it may be down there, if not up in the country club somewhere. My understanding is that whether he leased it or owned it, his pool was red and it had the Death Row Records uh, logo. Yeah, and it may have. I just don't remember all that because... It's been a while. I remember because I rented a helicopter so we could get shots of it. it we got shots of that, shots of the, the hospital, okay. shots of a lot of things. But that's how I distinctly sure. remember it in the Club 662. Sure. So from so they go to Suge Knight's home. Some of the entourage went to change. Yeah, there was supposedly some of them changed clothes there. I know there there were some off-duty Las Vegas officers working security, so to speak, for the area. Whether it was because of fight night, Suge Knight's house, but they were working that night. And uh, I know that uh, talking to one of the officers, they talked about the crowd, the vehicles coming in, and they remembered seeing a cream-colored Cadillac in part of the entourage, what they thought was part of the entourage. And eventually they left, the entourage left the house, the community. And stopping you there, when they say that, say that they noticed a cream-colored Cadillac, would they have taken down any license plates in such circumstances? Because sometimes when they have the, the, you know, the guard gate, you know, in gated communities, they take license plates or their surveillance. Not. Yeah, I know what you're saying because uh, certain gated communities do that for visitors. Uh, I don't recall that because you were talking a lot of activity going on. And since it was a resident that had a lot of the activity going on there, uh, yeah, there was no record of the officers wouldn't have documented everything because one, nothing... No one knew of anything happening at the MGM then. Nothing had happened yet. The shooting hadn't happened. It's just another typical fight night. You got a bunch of entertainers or celebrities, you know, doing whatever. That It's Las Vegas. <laughs> right. I just was wondering if it was just like a matter of course, sometimes a matter of course no. at the gate that they would take everybody who comes in. Yeah, I don't know that that's what they did at that community because, you know, that would have been private security working the gate per se, if, if, if that was gate, a, a guarded community, if it's just a gate, then you don't have a guard there. And how does that work in terms of off-duty police in, in this circumstance, as you know it? They were paid by death row. They're paid by the department to, just to be on the lookout. How does that work? Off-duty work for the police department, and I'm going by how it's supposed to be done, is if people need off-duty officers, they contact the police department and say they got to do that, you know, they need this. And obviously the department will, if it's going to require anything permitting or something, you know, most things don't, I don't think, but, uh, so they would say they need three officers hypothetically to work there. Then they have a, a list they do to call people. Do you want to work this job? They sign up for it. The person hiring them would pay the police department and then the police department would pay the officer. It shouldn't be any, there shouldn't be any money being passed off directly from say, Suge Knight 
to the officers working security. Got you. So they exit uh, Suge Knight's house and head... They, they would have exited Suge Knight's house. I believe that's Tomiyasu out there. I don't recall. I'd have to look at a map, but he, they went up to Sunset and would have gone west on Sunset. Now, they were supposedly going to Club 662, a nightclub that Suge Knight had some interest in. I don't, again, I'm not sure that he owned it. He was leasing it. Whatever. I'm, I don't think he owned the building. He was probably leasing the building for a nightclub. Uh, people say 662. If you look at the phone, is mob, M-O-B, which I guess fit the whole thing. But the direct way to go to Club 662 from Suge Knight's house would have been west on Sunset, north on Eastern, which would have put you east of the airport and way east of the boulevard to Flamingo and a left turn on Flamingo and then a right turn into the club. But in this particular case, it appears they continued west on Sunset uh, and got on Las Vegas Boulevard because at one point, I remember Frank saying something about, the, I think, the stop when the officers stopped them for the loud music. This is Frank Alexander. Believe, yeah, Frank Alexander. I believe he even said they were still south of the Tropicana. And the Tropicana Hotel is at Tropicana and the Boulevard. Now, you'd have to come up Sunset to get on the Boulevard because the airport's on the east side of Las Vegas Boulevard unless you went zigzagging through some residential areas. So they would have gone down Sunset, taken a right turn on the boulevard, and continued north. They'd have crossed Tropicana and ended up going all the way to Flamingo, where they would have taken a right and gone east to the club. So it would have been a roundabout way to get to the nightclub. It would not have been the quickest way. So not taking a direct route that night, what is that the significance as far as you're concerned? Well, it's a question mark. If you're in a hurry to get to the club, why aren't you going the quickest route? I also can look at it from the perspective of it's a weekend night and people like driving the strip. Maybe that's why they did that. I don't know. But it seems to me if you're in a hurry to get to the club, this isn't the way you're going to go because... One, traffic on Las Vegas Boulevard is going to be slow, where Eastern shouldn't be near as bad. Well, from things that I've read, Suge didn't necessarily always like to be the first person there. Uh, from Frank Alexander's book, he said that he made Tupac wait before the fight, and Tupac was getting a little bit agitated because he didn't show up for a while. And so, and he also might have wanted to be profiling he could have. He could have. I mean, you're driving down the strip, people are seeing you. And in fact, that became an, uh, a point of issue. Well, it was critical to the investigation because while I was interviewing or up to interview Frank Alexander and the other three up there at the Boulevard in Harmon, I came across a gentleman who was there with a camera who had told me he took a picture of Shakur and Knight in the black BMW on the boulevard. Uh, 
little did we know it would have been the last picture known to have been taken of him alive because that, that's what every, it appears to be that. So they're on their way to Club 662, which you're saying spells out M-O-B on the phone. And people mm -hmm. have asked, even asked Sugar, I've, I asked him myself about the significance of that, if mob is related to the Bloods, or apparently Frank Alexander said it related to money over bitches. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of stories. And you can roll the dice to decide which one the real story is. So they were headed there. They get stopped at one point by bicycle officers. Yeah, I believe it was, if I remember right, it was bicycle police officers on the strip. Uh, at some point, Suge gets out of the car, opens the trunk. There's a, there's a conversation. It seems to be a friendly conversation. They shake hands, and they're off and driving down the boulevard. As for the reason of the stop, what I've heard and read is because the music was too loud in the car. And I also understand that they were playing, Suge was playing uh, Ma Machiavelli, or Machiavelli, that's how Tupac pronounced it, Machiavelli. It was going to be, I think, Don Caluminati uh, or Caluminati. Right. Uh, it was whatever it was going to be, his, his the album, his next album. That's what was playing, bumping in the car. My understanding is, yeah, the music was blaring, and you could put, who knows, Suge Knight would be the only one to be able to tell you for sure that maybe he drove down the strip knowing it would draw a crowd, draw business to the club, because obviously it did it. We know it did as far as the girls are concerned, and as far as him being not wanting to be the first one there, well, and I don't know what time things were kicking off at the club, for sure. I mean, it's still late, and it's several hours, a couple hours after the fight. So, in my understanding from what I've seen is that a lot of people were already there. Waiting. So, Shakur wasn't there yet. The, the outlaws weren't there yet because they were in the car behind him. So, I'm sure they were waiting for him. Yeah. Again, Suge Knight would be the one to have to explain why the longer way to the club. And my understanding, it was a benefit for a program for children that was run by somebody from Las Vegas Metro, a police That's officer. the way it was explained to me. That was, in fact, I don't know if it was, was it children or fighters, boxers. Boxers, was, but... I thought children, yeah, it was a program for children and boxers, or maybe you know better. Yeah, because I know we had an officer that he his he loved to do it. He 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 sponsored and he coached boxing. Kids or adults? Uh, youth, you know, not okay. necessarily. That's what I meant. When we say kids, I don't mean five year olds necessarily. Gotcha. You could you're talking high school kids, maybe middle school kids. But he and his wife loved to do that. That was a big program of his, and he loved doing that. And it was a good deal. It was a very positive deal. He was training kids for, like, the Youth Olympics or whatever programs they had. So that was the benefit that Tupac was headed to, and he was going to perform, from what I understand? Correct. So then the bullets ring out from the Cadillac and the dark arm, Suge immediately makes a U-turn. Yes. 
to supposedly go to a hospital. But there aren't any hospitals that way. Not the route he took. There's two hospitals. If he'd have continued east on Flamingo, he could have eventually gotten to two different hospitals, one being a major hospital. I think they had a pretty good trauma. I think they had a trauma center there. Sunrise? Yeah, Sunrise Hospital on Maryland Parkway. And then there was Desert Desert Springs Hospital on Desert Inn or something out that way. I, I'm just going off memory. Because UMC Trauma and Valley Hospital, which UMC Trauma is where Shakur ended up, is on the west side of I-15 and north, way north. And he turned south on the boulevard. He was, he was going away from any hospitals. Is it possible he just didn't really know what to do and was just trying to get away from what he perceived to be a threat? He did live in Las Vegas. He was familiar with Las Vegas. He went to school there. But is it possible that he just really didn't know what the best way was to escape the threat? Anything's possible. I mean, he could have easily just brain farted and not know where the hell he was going. I mean, he says he was going to a hospital. You know, I can sit here and say, yeah, he's full of it, but I don't know. I can't say for sure. Who am I to say that? Who is anybody to say that unless they have something where he confessed to someone that he did it on purpose to hopefully make Tupac bleed out or something? Okay. You collected your interviews that we've just talked about. You also, at one point, collected some film. And I did get some updated information about all of that, but you you collected film. Yeah, I did. A gentleman said he'd taken some pictures. He had his camera, so I told him to give me his film. I believe it was a 35, it must have been a 35 millimeter camera back then. I took the roll from him and I says, uh, you know, there's going to be possible evidence on here and I'm taking it. And I confiscated it so we could process it. And we ultimately did. I learned a little bit of a backstory about the photographer. He said that he was stopped at gunpoint. And they, and they, and, he may, uh, and he, they handcuffed him. Been. They handcuffed him. And, and uh, again, they may have. <laughs> And then he said he, he gave all of his information, including where he was staying, you know, the hotel where he was staying. He went to the hotel. The police then came to his hotel and said, we effed up. We need you back at the scene. And, you know, one of us is going to drive your, your pickup. And, you know, you're coming with me, but we'll have your pickup so you can drive back. So they drove him back. And that's, I guess, where he ran into you. And you asked about the film. And he said, yes, I've got it in my car. And that that's how that all happened. Yeah. And I don't know anything about what the part is about the backstory because probably because somebody was embarrassed, they didn't want to say something about it. But that that's very possible that that happened. But the fact is, I got the film, got the picture. And he ultimately got the film back. Yes, he does say that. But I, I was going to also say that this is another case where 
he cooperated where he very well could have been really mad. I mean, very upset that guns were drawn on him and, you know, he's handcuffed for nothing. Yeah, he could. He could be bad, I'm, and but, I'm not saying he was being hostile or anything but he, by, but by the, any means, but as far as I was concerned. But I'm saying just the fact that he gave the correct information to police of where he was staying, and when they said, we want you to come back, we messed up, he was willing to go. I, I just thought, well, there were some witnesses who went above the call of duty, in a sense, because he was very free in saying, I took these pictures, and... Yeah, well, no, and I, you could easily present it that way. You could also present it as, the way I look at it, is if you saw someone shot knowing it was the wrong thing and you had some information, shouldn't you be willing to give that information to the police or should you keep it secret? He certainly was he, willing to. He, he was forthcoming. He was forthcoming, yes. You know, one other thing I might want to mention because uh, we're talking about me, but my partner, he went to the, he went to the hospital that night. I was I was at the scene, and my partner went to the hospital because one that's where Shakur was taken, that's where Suge Knight was going, and maybe there could be other witnesses there. We don't we don't know, so that was his job was to go to the hospital. As you were questioning folks, witnesses at the one scene, he, Mike, it was uh, Detective Mike Franks, yes. he went to the, the hospital simultaneously Correct. or how did, uh, okay. Correct. We were doing two different jobs. So, you know, we don't need to both be there. You know, if we had a hundred witnesses, it might've been a different story, but yeah, he got tasked with going to the hospital to see if he could gather any information because obviously Suge Knight is a critical witness. He's the guy driving the car. So I know he went to the hospital. I remember him saying it was chaos outside the hospital and, and around there, just people everywhere. And he was inside, you know, Shakur is being treated by the medical staff, so there's nothing he's going to be able to do with that. There's, there's no reason for him to be stepping in there. The guy is not able to say anything right now. They're doing what they can to keep him alive. But I know that he tried to talk to Suge Knight. Supposedly, he was talking to a woman. I don't, I don't know who that was. Suge Knight was talking to a woman inside the hospital. Yeah, at, at the trauma UMC. unit. UMC. Be, be, be at the lobby or the hallway or whatever. He's not going to be in exactly where uh, Shakur is. But I know Mike tried to talk to him, and and basically Suge Knight, you know, I don't have the exact verbatim what he said, but it was, he's talking to this woman, and he had nothing to say to Mike. And he knew he was a policeman because he identified himself as a policeman. So that night, Mike tried to get a statement from Suge Knight, and he declined. Your workday is done for both of you. That Sunday? Well, yes, eventually Sunday morning, because this would have happened late Saturday, what, a little after, what, 11.15 or so. And the interviews and stuff would have bled into the next day, you know, to the 8th. And it would have gone on 
I'm pretty sure the sun was already coming up by the time we were done, if not. But at this time, you got to remember, this is an attempted murder. Not to belittle the thing. It's not a murder yet. It's an attempt, two counts of attempted murder. So stopping you there, what would have been different if it had been a murder, if it had been a homicide that night? What would be different about the way you conducted yourselves? If, if Tupac Shakur would have died that night, they would have done the autopsy Sunday morning. That, that was typical. We would, or sometimes Sunday, if not first thing in the morning. Everything depends on how they have what's scheduled there, because I have no idea what's going on at the coroner's office over the course of the night. But they would have the dead body, and we would have had the autopsy that day at some point. So how would that have impacted your investigation, is what I'm trying to get out? Well, one, it changes the things from attempt murder to murder, one. Uh, we're going to have a little more details as far as, as, uh, his cause, his cause of death. Cause he didn't have a cause of death yet. He'd been shot. He'd been shot in the right finger. I think the right thigh and in the right side and the shot into the side was the one that was the critical one because it damaged his right lung. And I, I can't say from a medical perspective, but I would say that was probably the the gunshot that ended up causing his death. So we would have done an autopsy and, and worked some other things, but because it was an attempt murder, we had some information that we were running on and doing, but eventually we'd have gone home. I just don't remember what time that was. Okay, but just in a, in a nutshell, if you've been called out for an, a murder investigation versus an attempted murder, how... Would you have talked to the witnesses any longer? Would you have stayed up overnight, longer, more into the, the next day? We wouldn't have talked to the witnesses any differently. Uh, we obviously would have been up later because we had been waiting for the autopsy. autopsy. And keep in mind, if say they tell us the autopsy is at one o'clock in the afternoon, you know, we may go get something to eat, go back to the office, start putting our package together. And because that's the stuff we did, start putting things together because we have to start typing up an initial report. For the case file. You know, yeah. I mean, I did a handwritten report, uh, a basic handwritten crime report to to start the thing, but it was it was a very vague thing because that's what we did. And that was the beginning. We left it. The handwritten report would have been very general the description would have been just a synopsis. It wouldn't have been in great length because that's what we're going to put in the report after the fact. This is just to have something to show the basics. Now, we've got all our notes and all these other things. These interviews have to get transcribed. you got to remember, these are all done on cassettes. So our secretaries aren't going to be in until Monday. So they aren't going to start transcribing till Monday. And you also have to keep in mind, if you have 10 murders on the books and 60 interviews, cassette interviews, and we have only X amount of people to transcribe them, he's not getting moved. 
I don't, I don't think he got moved to the top of the pack. If there was murders ahead of him, those would have been taped or uh, transcribed first. Now, keep in mind, if they get really inundated, and I, I just don't recall if they were then, I don't recall how long it took to type these up. But if they get really inundated, I know that they would reach out to other people that would be able to type up and transcribe those interviews because we've done that before. Okay. So, in essence, you're saying really you wouldn't have done a lot differently? Not, no, not in the sense of what we did. It, yeah, it would have changed maybe a sequence of some things. Twenty-five years later, no arrests have been made in connection with Tupac's murder. If you have any questions you'd like to ask retired Las Vegas Metro Detective Brent Becker about the case, you have a few ways to reach out. Use the hashtag TupacMurderPodcast on Twitter or Instagram, or go to my website, TupacMurderPodcast.com. You can type out your question, record audio or video, and send it in. We will get to as many of your questions as possible. But then again, you may have answers to what actually happened 25 years ago. Send me a private message via Tupac Murder underscore podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or just go directly to TupacMurderPodcast.com. I'm Lena Nozizwe reporting. Tupac's Murder Was His Case was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lena Nozizwe. That's me. I also came up with the artwork and music. Jen Nathan Orris is the sound producer and audio consultant. Lowell T.C. Woundla is the creative consultant emeritus. You've been listening to Lena Nozizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. For extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com. Next time on Lena Nozizwe reporting... Tupac's murder was his case. And to be clear, the, these DNA samples were taken of Tupac, correct? Well, they took blood. They took the... Rib. Bone, the rib. They would have taken the rib. Now, did they do a DNA? Thing? I don't know that. I don't know why they would. Why would you spend the time or the money if you know who it is? It, that's usually for something... There's a question mark. You've been listening to an Azizwe T original. All rights reserved. Three, two, one.